Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. All right, I have, uh, I, I want to tell you off the bat, I have uh, worked hard to come up with an uh, incredible title for my message this morning. Our message this morning is entitled Growing Pains, and uh, just like today, the early church came with some, some good things, but also with some hard things. But I, I want to confess to you right off the bat that, of course, because I gave the title Growing Pains, I have, since Wednesday, been singing the theme song to the 80s sitcom Growing Pains. Except that on the way to church this morning, it occurred to me that I have not been singing the theme song to Growing Pains, but to Facts of Life. So I have been... <laughs> I finally went past the first like, little verse, and I was like, wait a minute, Facts of Life is in the song. Oh, this is not the right song. So there you go. Just a little insight into how my brain works, or doesn't work, as, as the case may be. Grab your Bibles, go to the book of Acts, and, and just remember with me that Dustin has been showing us in the opening chapters of Acts how the Spirit came upon the followers of Christ in an incredible way that the church is born and immediately starts to grow. Chapters 3 to 5 are just describing for us the impact that this new spirit-filled church has in the unfolding plan of God. And, and remember here, we're just kind of doing a survey over the next few weeks, uh, Acts chapter up to Acts chapter 10, and, and uh, just, you know, feel my pain a little bit. It's difficult for me not to, like, look at every single verse and belabor every single point, but it's good. It's, there, there is merit in pulling some of these lessons out and having some key reminders for us here. And so I just want this morning for you to look with me at some, some highlights regarding the formation of the church, what God was doing, what we can learn from it. And for starters, I want to give you three traits of the early church that we can copy. Three traits of the early church that we can carry over for us today. And remember here, Peter and John are kind of leading the charge in chapter 3. There's a healing at the temple that gives them this incredible open door to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim that the Jesus that everyone knew about that had been crucified had also been resurrected, and that he is, in fact, the long-awaited Savior, the one who fulfills all of the messages of the prophets about the Messiah. And what you see in these chapters, and kind of our first thing that, that we ought to carry over for us today, is that you see the church had a fervor for the gospel. The gospel is out front. I mean, bold evangelism. And this is a message about Jesus Christ. And uh, I think you probably know this already, but actually the gospel hasn't changed since the book of Acts. Can you believe it? Handed down all the way, generation after generation to us, it's the same thing that we're about. It's the same thing that we believe. It's the same thing that we are called to proclaim. In fact, Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And, and these apostles understood that God desires all men to come to the knowledge of the truth, to come to salvation in Jesus Christ. They understood that our sin separates us from a perfectly holy and righteous God. They understood that the judgment of God is upon those who would choose to reject the payment of Christ on their behalf and instead pay the penalty for their own sins by being separated from God for eternity. 
And they understood the summary statement of the gospel that, that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians that I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And so they're desperately seeking to compel people to do what Romans says, to, to confess with their mouth, to believe in their heart that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and to come to salvation. And this is the message. It was the message in the book of Acts. It's the message today that God's grace is waiting for you. If you'll admit your sinfulness, if you'll come to Jesus Christ seeking forgiveness and commit your life to follow him. However, this preaching quickly got the apostles in trouble, right? They got, actually got in trouble with the Sanhedrin, which is the same group that arrested and killed Jesus. These religious leaders were seeking to intimidate them, seeking to silence them, but their, their gospel fervor would not be extinguished. And, and one of the things that I think is so striking in these several chapters is how often they are ordered not to speak about Christ, and completely ignore the order, right? Just completely, I mean, literally within verses, it's like, so they went proclaiming, right? And, and I, I told the guys this week, I said, I almost feel like there should be like a footnote whenever it says, you know, they, they ordered them not to speak, you know, in the name of Christ any longer, there should be like a little asterisk, and then at the bottom it should just say, LOL, right? <laughs> I mean, they're just, they're, just not, they're just not listening to this. Look at chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. They say, so, so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. Literally, it, it, it says in the, the language, let us, let us threaten them with a threat. It's the idea of let us severely threaten them. And then verse 18, and when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And then verse 20, they are undaunted, right? They say, we cannot. Stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. In fact, they, they pray, verse 29, they're praying for courage to continue living in this way. Lord, take note of their threats. Grant your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. They know that there's a, a possibility that maybe in their, in their human frailty, in their human weakness, they might falter, right? They might give in to the pressure. And so they say, God, don't let us do it. Keep us bold. Keep us strong. And so the opposition comes in chapter 5, verse 17. They throw him in, in prison. Does that stop them? No. They continue on. They press forward. And by the way, one of the things that will really help your gospel fervor if you get thrown in prison is when an angel comes, lets you out of prison, and says, now go preach the gospel. And that's exactly what happened in verse 20. Go, stand, and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Pretty cool, right? Again, the opposition comes in chapter 5, verse 28. We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, of course, what they mean as an attack had to be one of the most encouraging things the apostles had ever heard, right? We filled Jerusalem with this teaching? That's exactly what we wanted to do. That's an incredible commentary on their ministry and what the Spirit is doing among them. And of course, the response is, hey, sorry, guys, we have to obey God, not you, right? Verse 32, we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. You jump to verse, verses 40 to 42. So they, 
They flogged them. They beat them, right? And they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they released them. They're on, you know, replay. This is a broken record, right? But this time it comes with a beating. And, and surely that'll stop them. Surely that'll shut them up. Verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Guys, can you believe it? They beat us up. They flogged us. They're treating us just like they treated Jesus. Verse 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So they had this incredible gospel fervor and a zeal for the lost and a passion for the truth of the word of God and salvation in Jesus Christ. But notice here, you, you can't escape it, that even this zeal can accomplish nothing apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. They had a fervor for the gospel, but they were also fueled by the Holy Spirit. See the Holy Spirit-fueled growth in this. You can, you can go all the way back to, to the beginning, to chapter 1, where there are 120 Christians, right? And, and then all of a sudden, the day of Pentecost comes, and it's 3,000 plus, right? And then chapter 4 says there are 5,000 just men, if you just count the men plus the women. And finally, in chapter 5, it just says multitudes, right? Multitudes of men and women, verse 14, were constantly added to their number. And Acts chapter 2, verse 47 says that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And you see that word added repeatedly throughout as if something outside of themselves, as if something external is adding to the numbers of the church. Not only that, but, but even in the disciples, even when we see and, and, and we commend the fervor and the diligence and the work of the disciples in this ministry, even that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's God who's working through them. The Lord gives the confidence that they prayed for, right? And, and chapter 4, verse 31 says that they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 33 says, God's grace was upon them. As I mentioned, the Lord sends an angel to free them from prison and then to instruct them. And they say in verse 32 that the Holy Spirit is our co-witness. It's like our co-missionary alongside of us. It's us and the Holy Spirit, and we're coming with the gospel. Not only that, but notice in these chapters the repeated use of the word miracle and the phrase signs and wonders. Holy Spirit is doing incredible things to jumpstart his church. And look, we, we understand that the Lord uses different means in different times. We don't practice the sign gifts. But we sure better be looking for the work of the Holy Spirit among us. We can't do anything apart from his indwelling, apart from his power. And really, this entire narrative in the Gospel of Acts is emphasizing the sovereignty of God as the one who causes the growth. Christ is the one who promised, I will build my church. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts and calls and justifies. He, he regenerates and baptizes believers into the body of Christ. So as we look forward to the year ahead and we think of every ministry in this church and every exciting thing that we want the Lord to do among us, we better not run ahead of the Lord, but we better make sure that our feet are firmly 
rooted in the word of God, that we are tethered to the work of the Spirit, and that we are ready for him to get all the glory for anything that he accomplishes in and through us. Fervor for the gospel, fueled by the Holy Spirit, and fellowshipping together. This is what they were devoted to from the beginning. Chapter 2, verse 42. Dustin spoke last week about the members and their care for one another. And, and in chapters 2 to 6, you see the word together in reference to believers like five times. This is just what they were doing. This is just who they are. This is where they wanted to be. They were together. They were meeting face to face. And these believers had in Christ a, a, a unity of heart and soul. And everybody really was desiring the same thing. They had the same purpose, and that is for the Lord to be honored among them. And this singleness of heart, this single-mindedness, showed itself in their love for God, but also in their devotion to one another. And what's incredible is how the rest of the people saw that. Now, the community around them, the secular community, saw what this Christian community was doing and how they acted and how they treated one another and, and how they loved. And they were amazed to see believers caring for each other in pretty extravagant ways. It's interesting to note, when you look at the, the timeline here in Acts and, and, and the early church, that the first couple of years of the church was actually a, a time of relative peace. I mean, the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders are, are opposing Christianity and and. and ordering them to, to be quiet and, and so forth. Uh, despite the religious leaders' opposition, the, the people in general had a favorable opinion at the beginning of this new group of Jesus followers. You notice chapter 5, verse 13. It says that the people held the Christians in high esteem. It's actually kind of interesting because it, it kind of a, the, the way it shapes up there is that the people are simultaneously afraid to join the Christians, but at the same time, they have a real respect for them, for the Christian community's generosity, for the, the joy with which they carry themselves. And then verse 14 says, God keeps adding to their number. People are not joining because, uh, oh, this is kind of a new cool thing to do. There's enough opposition to keep them from doing that, enough opposition to be kind of a, afraid of jumping into this. And yet there's this pull, there's this draw, there's this magnetic pull from, from these believers and their life and their lifestyle. It's incredible. The uh, Athenian philosopher Aristides wrote to the emperor Hadrian about the early church. And among all the things that he says, he says this. Every morning and all hours on account, uh, every morning and all hours on account of the goodness of God toward them, they render praise and laud him. Over their food and their drink, they render him thanks. And if any righteous person of their number passes away from this world, they rejoice and give thanks to God as though he were moving from one place to another. The person who passed away, right? Listen to this. When a child is born to them, they praise God. And if... Again, it chances to die in its infancy. They praise God mightily as for one who has passed through the world without sin. What an incredible testimony. Everything from the, the way they die and the way they handle death to the fact that they say grace. <laughs> they, they pray for their food, right? 
Think of all the ways in which we have the opportunity to be a testimony to the watching world. Now, so far, as we've described the church, we're basically describing kind of a model church, right? This is the kind of church we'd all like to be. I'm going to join the early church. That's That's the church for me, right? Find a church like that. But it's not perfect, right? And you know what they say about the perfect church, right? If you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it for everyone, right? Because <laughs> you're not perfect, okay? So if you're looking for the perfect church, you, if you find it, you're not going to be able to join it anyway, right? And I think it will be encouraging to us to, to simultaneously be overwhelmed by what God is doing and how well the people are doing and, and what's happening here and also to see a little bit of the struggle, right? Some of the, the hardship, even of their own making. So let's look in chapters 5 and 6 at some of the difficulties. You know, churches are made up of sinners, right? And even redeemed sinners are still sinners. And so the early church is quickly beset with sin issues and false teaching and organizational problems and persecution. And as we come into chapter 5, we see that the early church had something in common with every other church that you've ever been in. It had hypocrites in it. Just when the community of believers seems perfect, Luke records this very sobering event in which two believers are judged for lying to the Holy Spirit. Let's just read the story, verses 1 to 11 of chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira, whose names ironically mean gracious and precious. It says in verse 1, But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you've conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard of it. No kidding. (laughs) Can you imagine this scene? We are hoping not to replay this scene at the Anchor Bible Church when we plant our church later this year. This just seems like you're getting off to it. This is not a a good church growth method, it seems. And yet... A few verses after this story, it says God continues to add to their number. God is doing something here, right? But this is a a church service to remember for sure, right? I mean, look at verse 6. The young men got up, covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. And Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Holy Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. That has to be like the most ominous sentence ever uttered by a preacher, right? I mean, that's uh, resounding. And verse 10, we know what happens. Immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. 
And the young men came and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Well, we've been saying that in Acts, God added to the church. It tells us in chapter 2, and then later it says that God multiplied the number of the church. And here God does a little subtracting, all right? Of addition and multiplication, and now a little bit of subtraction, just two. Can you imagine this? Ananias and Sapphira planned to deceive the apostles. They were really doing what Barnabas had done at the end of chapter 4, but unlike Barnabas, they chose to keep back some of the proceeds. And that's not so much the problem as it is the fact that Ananias intended for the apostles and for the community of believers to think that they had given all the money for the land. That is to say, he wanted the praise. He wanted the, the recognition for his generosity. He wanted the appearance of a certain level of spirituality because it seems that he had a heart that was filled with pride and hypocrisy. Ananias hadn't been required to sell the land. He wasn't forced to give any amount or certain amount of the money, and, and yet he, verse 4 says, conceived this thing in his heart. And Peter rebukes him for his wickedness, tells him that ultimately he hadn't lied to men but to God. And God's judgment upon Ananias is swift. As soon as Ananias heard Peter's words, he fell down and breathed his last. And the young men, so thankful for young men and the way they serve and carrying things in the church. I'm just thinking like stacking chairs, those kind of things. But in this case... They were pressed into a different kind of service. This is odd, right? I especially think, surely, one of the young men, like when they came back and Sapphire was there, they're like, seriously? <laughs> Come on, Peter, we just, uh, okay, it's fine. Yeah, that's good. This, this is the last one for today, though, right? You know, when she comes, she's also committed to deceiving the spirit. Peter quickly reveals her dishonest heart by asking her questions. And Peter rebukes again her willingness to agree, to lie to, to test the spirit of the Lord. Why is this punishment so swift? Why is it so severe? I mean, it, we could be tempted if we didn't know it was the Lord doing this to say it seems like a bit of an overreaction. But remember that this is a pivotal time in church history. And God would not allow his plan for the church to be derailed and God is demonstrating at the very beginning of the bride of Christ, at the very beginning of the church, that he is serious about holiness in his church. And, and this is really is similar to some of the action taken in the Old Testament. We think of Achan, how when they, when they came to the promised land and Israel prepares for this new era of life in the promised land and Achan steals some of the spoils, and God brings swift judgment on him as well. And really, this is a story about God's hatred for hypocrisy in the church. Kent Hughes says it this way. The destruction caused by spiritual pretense is clearly more far-reaching than we can imagine. We know it has poisoned the life of the church throughout its history. Hypocrite is the secular cliche for churchgoer, too often rightly so. We know also that spiritual pretense diseases our relationships within the church. 
a lack of authenticity, a desire to put on a show or to be thought of as something that we're not. When Ephesians 5 says, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. For what it's worth, and we could debate this, you might be able to convince me, but I, I tend to think that Ananias and Sapphira were genuine believers. That, that this serves as a reminder to us that we are also susceptible to the sins of pride and hypocrisy. <laughs> Donald Gray Barnhouse says, if, if God acted today the way that he did in the fifth chapter of Acts, every church would need a morgue in the basement and a mortician on pastoral staff as God was rooting out the hypocrisy each week, right? God's purpose in taking the lives of Ananias and Sapphira is not an overreaction. It, the, the purpose, the desired result is seen in the text. In verse 5, great fear came upon all who heard these things. In verse 11, great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. God wants his people to have a healthy Fear of his holiness. The church is God's, is indwelt by God's spirit, is God's temple. And so this punishment is intended to sanctify the church, not just in that moment, but for all generations. It is a sanctifying discipline. And even though Luke's description of, of the believers in these chapters of Acts reveals a, a remarkable unity of the church as it's led by God's spirit. These believers had, had not been perfected yet. And this is a serious reminder for us that the, the appearance of obedience is no substitute for truly being filled with the Holy Spirit. Putting on a show, trying to make sure we look good in, in front of other folks, it's not what God's looking for. He's not looking for religiosity. God is looking for a, a heart that is transformed and that desires to be obedient to him because that's how we show our true love for him. And Christ loves the church. He loves his bride and protects her purity. In, uh, in chapter 6, verse 7, then, Luke gives the, the last of four summaries as we transition to, to one more story and, and uh, one more lesson for us from the early church. Luke gives the last of four summaries on the the growth of the church in Jerusalem. He had talked about the growth in chapter 2 and chapter 4 and in chapter 5, and now he says in chapter 6, verse 7, that the, the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And one of the most amazing things that was happening, sometimes I, I forget about this, is that a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith, Right? So even though the Sanhedrin are commanding the apostles to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, the apostles are faithfully obedient to God, and everyone's hearing the gospel, and this multitude of priests are getting saved. Can you imagine the stir that this caused in the religious community when all these priests are coming to Christ? Like, we are losing our grip on things here. But even this great news comes after a little bump in the road. Right? Chapter 6, verse 1, has a phrase that could induce nightmares in any pastor, any elder, any ministry leader in the church of any kind. 
And the phrase is, a complaint arose. <laughs> right? Oh, no. Not a complaint. Right? I remember being in a, in a church years ago, and, and someone decided we should have a suggestion box. You know, like they have at restaurants and stuff. But I just called it the complaint box. Because, come on, I mean, we all know what's mostly going to be in there. There's going to be some good suggestions, some good encouragements, you know, but it's probably mostly going to be complaints, right? And so a complaint arises in the early church. And, and this rapid growth of the first century church also means that there is a flood of people. And we talked about the growth, but by Acts chapter 6, estimates are that there could have been 20,000 believers. So this is like Jerusalem megachurch, Okay. And more people means more needs, and more needs means more ministries, and more ministries means more people to serve in those ministries, and more programs means more administration, and more administration means logistical problems. And so here we are. The disciples, the apostles say, rather than neglecting the, the spiritual disciplines of, of prayer and teaching God's word, they, they seek to commission a group of men to attend to some of the pressing needs of the body. And the complaint that arises here is, uh, um, among the believers is between the Hellenists, which is just Jews from Jerusalem, Jews, uh, uh, Jews who came to Jerusalem from the dispersion. They're, they're probably Greek-speaking Jews. And then you have the, the Hebrews, who are Aramaic-speaking Jews that grew up in Palestine. And the problem was that the Hellenists said that the Hellenist widows were not being provided for as well as they should be, as well as the Hebrew widows were. And so let's just point out a few things with the time that we have left. First of all, notice that the disciples' response to this complaint was to offer a solution. What a novel idea, right? Look at verse 3. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who, may, who we may put in charge of this task. They said, let's pick some men. Let's ask them to, to handle this. Right? This is what they decide to do. And, and, and what reason do the apostles give for this solution? Acts chapter 6, verse 4. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Right? We're, we're going to ask these men to step up and to fill this role and to handle this, which, by the way, is apparently a legitimate concern, a legitimate complaint. Right? Not all complaints come from a grumbling, complaining, discontent spirit. This seems to have been a complaint that was accurate because the disciples embraced it and they said, yeah, that, we, we need to do something about that. We need to fix this. And they put a plan into action. But make sure when you read verse 4 that you don't read it with like a, a condescending tone, right? We will appoint someone to do this and we will devote ourselves to prayer and preaching the word, right? It's not that. It's not the disciples saying, you know, we're too good for waiting tables and caring for widows. It's this. They know that the church has to be committed to the study of the word of God. It has to be committed to the gospel. It has to be committed to the doctrine of the apostles that was passed down to them from Jesus Christ. Because it, it's the word of God in their hearts, it's the gospel preached among them that is fueling their love for each other. And so there will be no church, there will be no you know, church that, that loves and cares for and has a heart of compassion if they don't continue to teach the truth from the word of God. 
And in fact, if you want to see the kind of the emphasis on the scriptures and on the word of God, you can start in Acts chapter 2 and just notice throughout these chapters that probably half a dozen times the Old Testament is quoted. They're using the scriptures. They're rooted in the word of God and sound doctrine. And again, notice here that this complaint, this concern seems to be legitimate. So they, they took action. They looked for a solution. And the solution came in the form of one of the most beautiful and incredible creations that God has ever created, deacons, right? We still have them today. We have the most handsome group of deacons. I remember we put their picture up there one day, and everyone was swooning. And No, we, we listen, deacons are servants. Deacons come along, and they say, like, here am I, send me. What needs to be done? Let's get it done. Right? Men of action. And, and, and just note here, first of all, that there's some, some structural organization. There's some formality here. This is a, a good thing. Those of you who hate the idea of another church committee, right? Well, this is a church committee ordained by the apostles and God, right? God is a God of order. And it's important that we have an orderly church. And so thank God for those administrators and organizers among us and, and and, and those who push us to strive to do the things that we do with excellence. And also notice in verse 5, the most remarkable point of this entire story, the first and last time this has ever happened in church history, everyone agreed, right? Everyone agreed. This statement found approval with the whole congregation. That's incredible. There's real unity here, right? I mean, imagine what a unified church like this can accomplish for the Lord. And even though I joke, one of the things that, that caused us to fall in love with Heritage Bible Church so quickly is the incredible unity that we see among the leadership of this church that it just, just trickles down to the body of Christ here. What a blessing. It reminds me of Romans chapter 12, verse 8, which I think is just a, a great rule for us as we do ministry, as we do work in the church. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. We're just seeking peace. We're seeking unity because that allows us to accomplish what the Lord has given us to do. Also, please notice that the solution here requires involvement. It required, first of all, godly men of character, right? What were the apostles' requirements here? Verse 3, that the men be of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So first of all, we need some good, godly men who can serve. What a desperate need we continue to have today for godly men and women who we can call into service and who are willing to serve, right? That's kind of the next part of it. You can ask these men to serve, but if they refuse or if they're unwilling or not interested, right, there has to be a buy-in from them. They have to step up and say, I, I will do this. So as we think about the willingness of these men to serve, as we think of them being called to serve and to meet this need, I just want to ask us, what practical steps can we take to make our local congregation more like the body of believers depicted in chapters 3 to 5? Think about their fervor for the gospel. What do you add to Heritage Bible Church in relation to fervor for the gospel. 
Is God stirring that up in you? Can you be a part as we go out from here? We, we gather to worship. We scatter to evangelize. To, to seek that, that everyone in your circle of influence, everyone that you come into contact with, you're being passionate to make sure the gospel is out there. What can you do to, to make sure that we're being fueled by the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is alive and active in this church, that we are filled with the Spirit by our obedience to Him, that the Holy Spirit has, has gifted you in a unique, special, even supernatural way to serve the body of Christ. And you're eager to find that gift and to use it. What about just in fellowship and coming alongside one another and, and encouraging each other and enjoying the body of Christ? In, in, in prayer and sharing and modeling a faithful life to others. Remember that the church is so precious to Christ. The institution that he promised to build, it's a, a gathering place for those who worship him. It is the bride of Christ. And so we want to cherish the bride of Christ. And we want to cultivate the ministry that God has given us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just the encouragement of the incredible things that you accomplished. I look at the book of Acts, and I'm just amazed at all that you did and the time that you did it and the way that it was accomplished. And Father, forgive me for the times when I forget or, or doubt that we have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same message. We are the same people of God. Father, you desire to do great things among us, really beyond what we could even imagine. So, Father, I pray that as we go forth on this day, this week, and the year to come, that as we submit ourselves to you and we commit ourselves to the message of the gospel and the teaching of the word, that you would bless us and do great things in and through us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.